0: Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone.
1: This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.
2: Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and dynamic women invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and this is the second half of my conversation with author Thomas Hischak, whose remarkable new book is titled The Abbott Touch, Pal Joey, Damn Yankees, and the Theater of George Abbott. If you missed our previous episode, you may want to catch up with that before listening to this one. George Abbott was a major force in the American theater for more than 80 years. As an actor, director, playwright, and producer, and often several of those at the same time, he played a significant role in the creation of well over 100 Broadway plays and musicals, including Jumbo, The Boys from Syracuse, On the Town, Where's Charlie, Call Me Madam, The Pajama Game, Once Upon a Mattress, and Fiorello, to name only a very few. Thomas Hischak is the author of more than 30 books about Broadway, Hollywood, and popular music, including Musical Misfires, Three Decades of Broadway Musical Heartbreak, The Mikado to Matilda, British Musicals on the New York Stage, and The Tin Pan Alley Encyclopedia. This episode is made possible in part through the generous support of Broadway Nation Patron Club members Kelly Allen, Roger Clarisse, and Neil Hoyt. If you would like to help support the work of Broadway Nation, I'll have information at the end of the podcast about how you, too, can join the club. At the end of the previous episode, Thomas and I were just beginning a discussion of that extraordinary list of Broadway's greatest writers, directors, and choreographers who were all, in essence, trained and mentored by Mr. Abbott. And that's where we pick up our conversation today. Here we go all these people were like
0: students in his classroom, you know, and they all became giants in the business and there he is still teaching school (laughs)
2: sometimes. Let's talk about those students because one of the hallmarks of George Abbott is that he almost always wanted to work with young, new, emerging people. Yes. He gave everybody a start. Let's talk about the writers first. What are the writers that George Abbott mentors and gives their first breaks to?
0: You look at some teams and you say, who directed their first shows, you know, so Adler and Ross, he directs Pajama Gang, their first show. Candor and Ebb, he directs Floor of the Red Menace, their first show. Not a huge hit, but he's doing Shelton Harnick and Bach, Jerry Bach, with, uh, what's their first one? Fiorello. Fiorello. Yeah, there they are.
2: Even going back to On the Town.
0: I was gonna say, going backwards, yeah, then you got Leonard Bernstein, you know, (laughs) starting off in his theater crew with Condom and Green, and Jerome Robbins, slowly kind of getting his foot in the door as a choreographer. They all worked under him. It was just amazing. You can imagine by the 80s to say, oh, yeah, I worked. George Abbott gave me my start 40 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) And he's still there. I think the most important of all the people he worked with was Harold Prince. Prince was his assistant, and Prince stuck with him right to the end. He was one of the few people who was encouraging him to keep doing these shows that nobody wanted to see off-off-Broadway. Prince learned a lot about directing from him. Prince would turn out to be such an innovative director, and I don't think he would have been without George Abbott. I tried to go through all the great composers. Everyone worked with them at one point, even if only once, like Rogers and Hammerstein. He worked with them on one of their not successful shows, Me and Juliet, or Cole Porter on one of his lesser famous shows, and of course, Rogers and Hart, and going back. Way back when
2: he did many Rodgers and Hart shows, didn't
0: he? At least four or five, yeah. But even
2: in Berlin, they crossed
0: paths at one time. You know, if you're going to play you know, six degrees of George Abbott, you only need two degrees, and you'll be everybody will be connected because he did work with
2: everybody. You talked about Jerome Robbins, the choreographer. The list of choreographers is amazing, starting yes. with Balanchine. But right. literally every choreographer of important Broadway choreographers yeah. works with George Abbott in the beginning, but he had rocky relationship with choreographers, didn't he?
0: Choreographers caused the problem because they were directors of the musical part of the show. And it was very hard for him to say, okay, that's your part of the show. I won't have anything to do with it. He respected the good choreographers. He loved Balanchine, you know, but when he had a weaker choreographer, this guy is slowing down my show, or this guy, you know, he didn't, I, yeah, he had more problems with choreographers than anyone else. There were a few times where the book writers, you know, there were arguments. A few actors, but very few, that he had personality conflicts with. Some actors who didn't think they were going to like working with him, once they did, they loved it, and they did great stuff. But choreographers, especially as they got more powerful, you have to remember that in the old school, the choreographer worked with the dance chorus. They weren't even on stage when you did the book (laughs) scenes. So the director is directing actors and some singers, and in the other room, the choreographer is working with his people, the dancing chorus, and then we bring him in and we sandwich them in the show. He didn't like that, unless they were on the same page. He and Jerome Robbins had a lot of arguments, because Jerome Robbins was strong-willed and was brilliant, but brilliant didn't always mean right. You know, he didn't care about, the. you know, you're not going to get your Tony Award if you cut this number. No, he was about the show, you know. Right. And he cut his own scripts, he cut his songs, you know, he was brutal when it came to Trimming and doing what you had to do to make a show work. And he was just as likely to cut his own stuff, and say, Up, oh, that whole scene, I don't like the way I staged it. It's slowing things down. Let's just get rid of it, you know? Playing
1: on his slide trombone in a certain monotone, he was known as Mr. Monotony.
2: One famous example of this was Jerome Robbins' staging of the song and dance Mr. Monotony, which was first cut from Miss Liberty, directed by Moss Hart in 1950, and then cut again from Call Me Madam, directed by George Abbott in 1952. Jerome Robbins had the final word, however, because the number finally made its Broadway debut in 1989 in the show Jerome Robbins Broadway.
1: Folks full miles would stay yeah.
2: One of the things he was most famous for was being a show doctor. Yes,
0: we have no idea how many shows he worked on because he was the go-to guy for that for at least 30, 40 years. If you're in trouble, you go. He could put his finger on it sometimes. Sometimes that action would actually come in and take over. And right later, he says, it was too late. There's a point where it's just, you can't save it. But there are other times he did turn shows around. He got such a reputation that everybody thought he fixed all these shows somewhere which you never saw. And sometimes just him showing up, looking at the show and saying, hmm, yeah, pretty good, you know, was enough. That's all I wanted. (laughs) I tell the story about West Side Story. West Side Story is in Washington trying out. I believe it's Washington. This is a pretty new and innovative show. And they're not quite sure Harold Prince, the producer, co-producer, and Jerome Robbins there. And it's like, you know, I just don't know how this is going to go over. Let's call the old master down. He takes the train down begrudgingly goes, asks for a nice dinner ahead of time, goes and watches the entire show and just kind of nods and then after show, he doesn't say a thing and he says well, I'm going to get back to my train and they take him to the taxi and he didn't say one word. Gets in the taxi and then he rolls the window down and said, another show fixed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, He came, he saw him, and he moved or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> He did have a sense of humor. He wasn't the warmest and jovial type person, but when he wanted to say something, and yeah. When poor Stephen Sondheim, young guy. There he is with his first Broadway musical that he's a composer for him. Uh, they're looking at the back, standing in the back. Hell Prince is producing it, I believe. And there's Sondheim and Larry Gebhardt, and it's not working. It's terrible. George Abbott says, I don't know what to do. Somebody called George
2: Abbott. <laughs> 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 (laughs) 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 And of course, who they called was Jerome Robbins. And yes,
0: he changed the opening number. He told Sondheim it was all wrong. He staged the
2: opening number, but he didn't do too much else. The chase scene, I think he worked on, yeah. But the
0: director was George Abbott. He was the choreographer, but he was the director. The young guy, who wasn't so young anymore, came in and saved an Abbott show. That was kind of a turning point. It's like, oh, when somebody has to save an Abbott show, wow. Because he was the one who always came in and saved other people's shows. But I make the argument in the book that most of it was there. You know, it wasn't like Jerome Robbins came in and turned something that was awful. But he was so right about the opening number that everything fell into place.
2: What he put his finger on is that the opening number wasn't telling you what the rest of the show was going to be. So Once you told the audience what it was going to be, then the rest of the show came to life. Abbott's part of the show came to life. It's that
0: thing where uh, one little song or maybe one little bit will affect everything that comes after it, or something that's in the way that's wrong and it's not working. And what you needed to fix it was so small you think how could that matter, but it did matter. Sometimes it was the actor delivering a line the wrong way. It was the punchline for the scene. It was that. So then we went into the next scene and it just didn't work because that punchline didn't work. It's as delicate as that. Not an Abbott show, but a good. Example of that is the song from My Fair Lady on the street we were live was dying. Audiences were yawning and everything. And the poor learner in the group, they couldn't figure out what's wrong. This is a great song. So they found out and they asked audience members, they said, Yeah, who was that guy? And the <laughs> guy came out and started singing the song. And we wanted to get back to the show. They didn't know who he was because they couldn't remember that he had been back in act one. one. Yeah. Once yeah. they added a few lines to say who he was, everybody said, Oh, I remember him. And they <laughs> loved the song. That's showbiz. Yeah. Uh, it's that delicate Sometime. This is a drama of ancient Greece. It is a story of
1: mistaken identity. If, if it's, it's good, good enough for Shakespeare, Shakespeare, it's good, good enough, enough for us. Hurrah, haroo! There'll be an execution. It serves him right. The law makes retribution. There's going to be a killing. Hurrah, haroo! It serves him right. Hurrah, haroo! What did? He, do. he came from Syracuse No,
0: no, no Yes, yes, yes So let him plead for what's the use The man from Syracuse The man's from Syracuse
2: In terms of musicals, which is what he's most famous for today, what are those shows, most of them he wrote the books for as well?
0: Usually co-wrote, in the case of like Pajama Game, Damn Yankees, he would work with the original author, Fiorello, he worked with other writers and stuff. But as we said, he wrote them in such a way that he saw exactly how they're gonna look on stage. Then he went into rehearsal and he did that. There's only a few boys from Syracuse. It was just Abbott and Shakespeare. There's no other co-author. All right. And the other good example of where's Charlie? It's Abbott and the original play. Charlie's aunt. There's no other writers involved. And and I'm forgetting, but there's probably a few others. We can say, okay, he's the only author. Everything we hear and see is his. Unless he's adapted it from something else. I think there's some of the best scripts. I really do. Yeah. I think that Boys from Syracuse and Where's Charlie can still be played because the books are pretty good. They have wonderful songs. I think Damn Yankees has got a lot of plot problems and script problems, but it just plays so beautifully. Abbott did not mind when Jack O'Brien was directing that revival of Damn Yankees, he was listed as a consultant. I don't know if he did anything on that. I tried to get Jack O'Brien to talk to him and I couldn't get through to him to say, did he do anything? Because they made some script changes, they changed some scenes around. We know he approved. It would have been a big deal if he didn't approve. So you just ruined the second act. And he was
2: there. He was in the audience. He He saw it.
0: Yeah, I think he was at rehearsals too, maybe not many. And I know that O'Brien sent some of the changes to him, you know, mailed it to him and said, I'm thinking rewriting this scene here. So he must have approved of it, but I think it's a better script, you know, the one they ended up with. How do you put your finger on exactly what he wrote and what made it work? It's hard to say. Sometimes the co-author was just there because they wrote the original book and then they tried to write the libretto and it was horrible, so the producer said would you, beside directing it, would you fix up the book? We don't know how much of that happened.
2: When even on Pal Joey, you tell us that John O'Hara disappears from rehearsal, right? He didn't know anything about theater. And he, I don't think he, you know,
0: he thought it was a good idea. It was his idea, I think, but he wasn't involved. And if you look at the Pell Joey stories, there's no dialogue, it's all narration by Joey. He had to do a hell of a lot on that one. I would say that's one of the stronger Abbott's librettos because I know what he started with and I saw what he came up with. And I'd say that's a writer.
2: Contrary to some way people might view him today, he's writing some tough shows. I mean, in terms of the material is not squeaky clean and is not middle of the road in any way.
0: You figure by the 50s, late 50s and 60s, you know, he's the old man and he's literally the old man and he's out of date and he doesn't know it. And he'll turn around and do a show like the Anna Christie version of Anna Christie,
2: New Girl in Town.
0: New Girl in Town. It's like, wait a minute, this is not 1930s musical comedy. This is serious stuff.
1: See my rosy cheeks, my sunny disposition. You can see I grew up fine as silk. You put me on the farm, far away from harm. All kids need to grow up nice is milk. On the farm, on the farm, far away from any harm. Country butter, eggs by the dozens, getting grabbed by all my cousins. On the farm, on the farm. Pretty birds, pretty brooks, like you see in picture books. In the barn with Uncle Jake, if you squeal, you get the rake. On the farm, on the farm, Uncle Sven was kind of a preacher. Would have made a swell school teacher. Studied all the natural habits of the horses, cows, and rabbits. I was teacher's pet. I learned some things I'll never forget On the farm, on the farm Any girl is safe from harm Might have grown up in the city Never knowing it's so pretty On the farm, on the farm With those lecherous, treacherous cousins On the
0: farm And he didn't shy away from it. Fiorello is not your traditional 1930s musical comedy. So, yeah, with just to do Pal Joey back in 1940 was daring as hell. You know, right. all those critics who said, oh, this is really good, but my goodness, it's smutty. I mean, do we need this? And he didn't seem to be worried about it, and that was 1940. Some other shows like that. Some he toned down. I think Floor of the Red Menace was supposed to be a lot more biting about communism in America. It ended up being a musical comedy comedy. Maybe that's all it was good for. I, I don't know. but well, In uh, some
2: ways, that's a political issue probably too. Is he was fairly conservative in his politics, at least later in life. Yeah, he wasn't
0: a politically active but his sentiments were pretty traditional, pretty conservative. Yeah, And in that one, even Pajama Game, he wasn't going to get deep into labor management, unions and stuff because he probably would have been the more conservative view of it. That musical, very carefully but I think it's pretty clever just skims the top of the issues without really getting bogged down. It's, it's a musical comedy. I'm thinking of him directing something like Brooklyn, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Again, a very serious musical about an alcoholic and his family, and he has a bunch of those, you know? It's like, well, I thought he was the old man who only did all kind of shows. No, he was doing shows that were pretty nervy. I think he would have done more in the 60s when things got really interesting, <laughs> but he was not in favor. He had those hits at the beginning. He did Forum. He did uh, Once Upon a Mattress. He had a couple comedies that ran a long time. But by 66, and Cabaret is opening, you know, and Harold Prince is breaking new ground, nobody was going to him with those scripts.
2: I was struck by your line in the book where you said in 1968, not only did George Abbott not have a hit that year, nobody had a hit that year.
0: (laughs) For a man who is used to having sometimes three, maybe even four shows running simultaneously, Something else. I think we have to explain too that a lot of the bad theater he did, plays and musicals, were because he could not not work. He had to be working on something and he would rather be given a dreadful play and try to make it work than not do it. And to stay home. Because he was a workaholic and he had to work, it meant he accepted jobs that nobody should have accepted, especially somebody of his stature. And people knew this. Producer doesn't have very good material. All the good directors have turned him down. But George Abbott wants to, you know, he wants to work and he will do it. And that explains some of those horrible things in the 60s and 70s that his name was attached to. The critics were pretty good. They were like, even George Abbott can't save this. It's a compliment as each show fell down and whatnot.
2: Even though the second half of the book, although you don't approach what you tell us chronologically necessarily, uh, you've arranged it in an interesting way. But still the last third of the book, I'll say, is almost all failures.
0: Really? Yeah.
2: Unlike some other books, I didn't walk away depressed about it because Mm -hmm. it did feel like he just kept going. Mm -hmm. He just could brush it off and go back to work.
0: I didn't see these late, not so great musicals and plays. But in many cases, the producers, you know, he wasn't getting top producers either. They didn't have the money to let a show run and catch on. And there were a couple there in the old system, George Abbott's name and some good reviews and a little chutzpah. They, you know, they could have got a modest run out of that, but they'd close in a week. It was like, well, the reviews are bad and we don't have an advance and whatnot. I'm speaking speculative but I think like the musical called Music Is which had music by Adler from Damn Yankees and was based on Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. I've only heard a few of the songs. They never did a recording of it. I looked at the reviews carefully. That should have had a chance and it just didn't. The producers just didn't have the money. But it was a gorgeous production, wonderful performances, some pretty good music as I could tell. And even Clive Barnes, I think, said that it be about when he was still reviewing. He said students should look at this play as an example of how to adapt shakespeare for the musical stage he was that impressed by the script so they weren't all bad but the circumstances where they didn't really get a good fair chance and i've heard some of the songs from the off broadway off off broadway shows that he did and there's quality stuff there there's no question but the odds were way against that sort
2: of thing so what was the abbott touch Don't go away. Thomas and I will be back with more Broadway Nation right after this quick break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make everyday delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. So what was the Abbott touch? I was so impressed because it seems like you read the scripts to every show he ever was associated with, or you could get your hands on.
0: All the musicals, the librettos are somewhere. The plays, some of them are really far and few between.
2: And one of the things I loved about that was that for most of them, you have at least a short quote of dialogue from many of these plays and many of the musicals as well, which was just fantastic to see your synopsis and then get a little taste of what the dialogue was. Yeah, I mean, how
0: do you judge a play by the plot? I, I try to find pieces of dialogue. Sometimes the pieces I picked were just showing that it wasn't that strong, but generally I tried you know, Showing a good light. When it comes to the end of the book, and I had, I put together a bunch of quotes of what different people thought, you know, the Abbott touch was, I think the one who came closest to expressing it would be Hell Prince. And very few people were more close than Hell Prince because, you know, he was like his father figure, you know, or mm-hmm. later his grandfather figure. And uh, Hell Prince was brilliant and he knew what to take. And he had a pretty good idea of what made Abbott's work. And I, I have several quotes by Prince. Because luckily, Prince did write an autobiography where he talks a lot about Abbott. And I think the thing that struck me about what Prince said is when you're working on an Abbott show, because you produce several of them. That this guy knows what he's doing. That The Abbott touch was, oh, maybe it was an illusion, but it was like, don't worry, George Abbott's in charge. You're going to be all right. It's not working. He'll fix it. He'll find out if it could be fixed. He will fix it. He will get the performance that you thought, we're not going to get a good performance. No, he will get it. It was a sign of trust and satisfaction to say, okay, George is here. Or Mr. Abbott, I guess you, they thought George, but they never said it. Mr. Abbott in charge, I think we're gonna make this work as best it could. That's from the other point of view. When they asked George Abbott, he just said, yeah, I make them say their final syllables or consonants. But I think that was it. There was an efficiency. And I like one quote when William Goldman wrote that wonderful book about the season. It happened to be that season, George Abbott was directing The Education of Hyman Kaplan. I think I got that right. And he watched rehearsals and everything. And this was not a hit, though it hit Charm. And he said, you watch that show and you never were lost. You're never like, what is that? for or why is that happening? Everything was clear. Everything made sense. He thought that was the Abbott touch, that what you saw on stage was so well thought out that you could enter into it and not worry about where is this going, that sort of thing.
2: It strikes me that both what he said and what Prince said carried over to the audience as well. Their experience of the Abbott touches that they were in safe hands, too. From curtain up, from lights up on the show, over the first note of the overture, they felt like, oh, he's going to take care of us.
0: Yep, the, the trust and the confidence. And uh, if he wrote it, co-wrote it, and directed it, you knew it was going to be a safe bet. Even though it might not be a hit, you were going to be in the right hands. Yeah, that sort of thing.
2: And of course, he had the opportunity to do it 117 times. Nobody gets to do that today. And especially new emerging directors or choreographers or anybody, I will say this about Rodgers and Hart, they got to write five or six shows that probably weren't so good, that had hit songs in them, but they were good enough to get by mm-hmm. in those days. And they got to learn on the job. Yes. And that is something that is gone. The learn on the job we don't get to do anymore except yeah. once.
0: You don't have the opportunity to fail frequently. Right. Because they all did. But you know, if you worked on three musicals a year, just think what you're learning and what you're gaining. Maybe only one of those three ran, but you're growing and you're you're in the business where now it's you put all your dice in one shot and that's it. The idea that it takes, you know, eight years for a show to get to Broadway now, you know, from wherever it starts. They were cranking them out. Rodgers and Hart, Cole Porter, they had at least two a year, you know, at least. And that's a world where you can work a lot and you don't dwell on, oh, that one didn't work because you're already in rehearsal for the next one. That was very, very common that he had a show and it opened. But by the time it opened, he was already working on the other one. It's going out of town maybe already. So there was that hustle and bustle of doing and everybody was more concerned about doing it rather than thinking about it, contemplating where their career is going that sort of thing.
2: I know it's an unusual story in terms of Wonderful Town, but they write that score in, what, three months?
0: Very quickly. Uh, I forgot what the, the reason was. Oh, they lost the It was writers. supposed to be
2: a different composer, right? Yes.
0: The score was horrible. They got Bernstein to come in Bernstein by that time was, you know, such a famous conductor and everything. And for him to come back and get together with his old pals, Condon and Green, and to put that thing together, yeah. But that ended up being one of his least favorite experiences, Abbotts. But it wasn't Condon and Green and Bernstein. It was the book writers, the ones who had written the original play. And uh, there was a lot of antagonism there. And he said it was the worst experience. He was businesslike, but he didn't like to have drama tension he didn't like that He liked the calm of a well-organized rehearsals. You know, he loved rehearsals much more than, you know, the final tryouts and performances. He he didn't care about those so much. He loved rehearsing. And uh, if the rehearsal situation was just ugly, like it was in Wonderful Town, even though the show was a hit and it was wonderful, he just couldn't look back on it very favorably because it was a bad experience.
2: In this non-biography, of course, you still have to deal with his personality and his persona. What were the things about Abbott as a person and as a man and as an employer that struck you?
0: The paradox of the man is what intrigued me because he was so filled with contrast. Some people thought of him as a father figure. He protected them. He cared about them, but he wasn't warm or friendly. And other people said he was just a brutal person who said, this is what I want and you don't get it. This is what I'm going to do and you're out. And this is what I say and your opinion. I'll listen to it, but I'm not going to go by it he did both. I think even those that loved him and had great affection for him had times where they bristled at what he did. He was an odd guy. He was very self-centered in some ways. And then he would do something totally generous, something that just surprised everybody. He was aloof. That's why he was always called Mr. Abbott. Nobody dared call him anything else. few people did, but basically he's Mr. Abbott. He's unreachable. He's a little bit mysterious, you might say.
2: People are afraid of him.
0: Yeah, fear. Yeah, downright fear. What's he going to say? What's he going to do? Is he going to say this to me? I'll be shattered if he does this, as opposed to another director. So the man was complicated, and when you read his autobiography, which is his point of view, you realize he was filled with all kind of contrasts in himself, all kind of battles going on, a terrible childhood, awful parents, awful father. He had baggage with him, to say the least. I think early on, he decided what he was going to be person-wise, personality-wise. And he played that part for 80 years. It was a part. It was a mystique that he put on, where in reality, he just liked to play golf and other normal things. But in the theater, he was the mysterious god-like figure that I don't know how I can approach him. Other people said, oh, he was so approachable. So who's the same?
2: It's so interesting because you talk about that early in the book that he takes on this character, the farm mm-hmm. boy, who's sort of a hellion at some point. Yeah, he's a juvenile delinquent. <laughs> <laughs> and sort of overnight, it seems like he decides that's not what I want to be anymore.
0: That's right. It's almost like he practically said, I don't like that scene. Let's rewrite it. And that's what I'll play for the rest of my life. Now, you have to remember throughout his life, he never talked about his childhood. He never talked about the past. He didn't even like the to talk about old shows that he had done. He was always worried about the next show. That's why it was so surprising to me when the autobiography came out in 1963. And he's revealing, you know, he's a bedwetter, you know, he's still talking about very personal things. His first wife, who he loved, but for him to admit in an autobiography, his wife dies. He is so upset. And then the next day he realizes I'm totally free because he got engaged when he was only a teenager. That's the first time in my life I'm free and I feel so guilty, but I'm so happy Who would admit that? Except to your (laughs) shrink. And he put it in the book. I think the book shows you there was a lot more going on beside the Mr. Abbott mystique that most people saw.
2: Fascinating. Thomas Hischak, thank you so much for joining us today on Broadway Nation to talk about the Abbott touch. It's been a pleasure.
0: Oh, it's been a pleasure for me too. Thank you. If
1: they asked me, I could write a book. About the way you walk, and whisper, and look.
2: Here's the information about how you can become a patron of Broadway Nation. A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special on-air shout-outs and acknowledgements of your vital support for this podcast. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. That's broadwaynationpodcast.s-u-p-e-r-c-a-s-t.tech. Or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Thank you in advance for your very generous support. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network.